0: hello kindred spirits welcome back to kindred spirits book club where two grown-ass ladies geek out about anne of green gables i'm reagan duffy and i'm joined by my co-host kelly gerner hi kindred spirits Kelly, it is properly fall now. Oh, I know.
1: It is like actually cool outside.
0: It makes me so happy. And especially us Los Angeles girls where we really appreciate even the mildest change of seasons. Yes. Okay. And here's the funny thing. My husband is a Los Angeles native. He does Mm -hmm. not understand the fact that when the seasons change, you cook differently. I'll be like, oh, it's cool out. Time to make soup. Time to make lasagna. Time to make fall foods. And he was like, what are you talking about?
1: I I I think your husband is just a weirdo I'm also an LA native and we definitely cook different foods when it got colder you have heavier foods when it's colder outside and you have lighter foods when it's hot I think it's just what your body wants right when it's hot you want those like bright crunchy foods like salads and fresh produce and when it's cold you want rich yummy melty foods
0: okay so listeners I'm gonna tell you about the most amazing salad that I made when Kelly and I went on our girls weekend retreat up to the mountains a couple of weeks ago, because it was the perfect transition food. It was not cold enough to feel like we wanted to make like soup and sit by the fire and that type of thing, but it was not cold enough for that. Not quite. We wanted it, but yeah, it just wasn't there yet. But I found this recipe. It's on my absolutely favorite cooking site, which is smittenkitchen.com. It's called the Apple and Cheddar Crisp Salad. You guys, you it's must so good. you must make this. It's kale. And then it's sliced apples and sweet and spicy nuts. And then here's the best part. You take like shredded cheddar and you and you bake it in the oven until it gets all like crispy and lacy and crumble that over the top. And then it's got kind of a bright apple Mm -hmm. cidery based vinaigrette
1: amazing it was so good it was like the salad version of like an apple cheddar charcuterie board really really delicious so we had that just for dinner just by itself one night and we were like thrilled absolutely so if you are looking for and i think it still works if even when the weather gets colder and you could totally throw like some grilled chicken or maybe even some pork or something on top of that if you did want some more protein on it but it's it's good without it too
0: it was. We added grilled chicken,
1: and I think I added dried cranberries because we had some. And yeah, that was, nice. were, that was a nice little addition, little bright, um, bright. No, that salad was wonderful. And then I made a caramel apple chai cocktail while we were there, too. Again, we were really just feeling the fall vibes, even though it was solidly 75 degrees the entire weekend. <laughs> But this was good. So it was like an iced cocktail. It wasn't warm. So we had some spiced apple cider. We also had some chai concentrate. So if you've seen that at the grocery store, spiced rum mixed together, super simple. And then what I did was I dipped the rims in caramel sauce, like what you would top ice cream with, and did a little cinnamon sugar around the rim as well. So they were very tasty. That was awesome because it really had those fall apple
0: spice flavors, mm-hmm. but it was still like bright and sparkly and not too heavy considering- yeah, it was pretty refreshing. Yeah, it was still 75 degrees. And Kelly and I drank our cocktails and watched the sunset and took pictures of various and books for our Instagram in the sunset, so-
1: Yeah, readers, just picture us like cocktails in hand, getting progressively tipsier, just taking pictures of Anne books (laughs) against autumnal landscapes. That's basically what we did with our evenings. (laughs) Everybody's
0: got a hobby, right?
1: (laughs) Shall we dive in the episode? Yes, we could probably keep
0: talking about food, but let's (laughs) talk about Anne of Wendy Poplar's. And today... We are going to be talking about all the romance in Anne of Windy Poplars. And to that end, our kindred spirit of the episode is Anne herself. As all of our listeners know, Anne has always loved romance, particularly other people's. She's been writing romantic stories since she was a child. And now that she's grown up, she just can't help getting involved in other people's romances. So for our quote of the episode, we have this little nugget direct from Anne that explains a lot about her mindset in this book. She writes to Gilbert in a letter. Since my own little romance is in flower, I am all the more interested in other people's. A nice interest, you know, not curious or malicious, but just glad there's such a lot of happiness spread about. Anne wants everyone to be as happy as she is, and if she can see a way to help someone get out of their own way to happiness,
1: then she wants to do it. Okay, Reagan. I have to share a story. So when I was engaged to my husband, I also went through a period of meddling in other people's romantic lives. And I think it was very much along these same lines. Like I wanted other people to be as happy as I was. So I thought that my law school study buddy and Chuck's best friend would be a good couple. They had met on a couple of various occasions, just at different parties. And it seemed like they liked like each other, but I wasn't sure if there was a spark. So I decided to push the needle forward a little bit. And I sort of told both of them that the other one liked them. They had not said this to me. I just decided that I wanted it to be true. Allie, talk about meddling. So <laughs> my husband's best friend was like, oh, okay. I mean, it, she likes me, like, 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 likes me, likes me. You know, we're all like 22 at this time. <laughs> um, and I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You should ask her out. And he's like, oh gosh, and it was clear he had never thought of her that way, but he's like, okay. And so he asks her out and they go out on this date. Anyway, they've been married for about 15 years now and have two kids. <laughs> <laughs> hmm all right. All right. That is a notch in your belt. That's a Did notch ever, for sure. I'm I'm proud of that one. I haven't done too much other meddling though. That was dicey. That one was dicey. I took that a- could have really cut the other way. Yeah. Really. <laughs> Did you ever confess to them your meddling? Oh, no. They figured it out. They okay, figured good. it out on like their third date. They like conferred with each other. He was like, hey, so when did you tell Kelly you liked me? And she was like, I never told Kelly I liked you. And she was like, Kelly told me that you liked me. And he was like, I never told Kelly I liked you. So yeah, they, and then they like, you know, called me shortly afterwards being like, you were a liar. And I was like, correct. <laughs> correct. But I knew that you would <laughs> like each other if you had thought about it. By that time, they were well on the way to liking each other for real. So it was all to the good. But yeah, no, I was the meddling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anyway, let's get into our story club. Romance is all over Windy Poplar's, and it's about as far from the idealized version that Anne loves as you can get. Nevertheless, Anne has plenty of fun getting involved in other people's romances. Anne caught the matchmaking bug from nudging Miss Lavender in Anne of Avonlea and Janet Sweet in Anne of the Island, and it seems to have just caught on from there. Anne's love life is settled by Windy Poplar's. She and Gilbert are engaged, and she's in a bit of a holding pattern romantically, aside from a few little flirtations with Gilbert in her letters. Anne has three years until they can get married, after Gilbert finishes medical school, so she turns her romantic heart instead to other people's love lives. Sometimes that works out, and sometimes, as we'll discuss, it doesn't. (laughs) So, point of order, why do Anne and Gilbert have to wait until Gilbert finishes medical school until they can get married? In episode 27, we discuss courtship in this era, and one thing that we learned is that middle-class couples generally wouldn't marry until there was enough money to provide for their own household. So while I'm sure plenty of people did marry earlier, waiting to marry until there was some financial security was thought to be the better path.
0: And that explains why Billy Andrews could then propose to Anne through Jane once
1: he got the Upper Andrews Farm. Right. Exactly right. He wasn't in a position to propose marriage before. And so I think Gilbert is feeling much the same way, even though he and Anne have a longstanding friendship, obviously are very much in love at this point in the books. He is waiting until he has graduated medical school, has a job, is able to be a financial provider. So for a lot of people in the Victorian and Edwardian eras, marriage was still seen as an economic joining of forces more than a purely romantic pursuit. And even middle class couples who were not bringing like great wealth to the table would still have wanted to be able to provide their future spouses with that economic security. And it was also really common at the time to have a long engagement because that often gave engaged couples a chance to get to know each other better. I think we kind of see that in this book somewhat, right? Like, although Anne and Gilbert do know each other really well already, it seems like their correspondence does take them to a whole other level of intimacy.
0: It really does. You kind of notice in the book, in the way that Anne writes to Gilbert, that she can be so much more open and emotional with him in her Mm -hmm. letters Mm -hmm. in a way that she couldn't throughout her four years of college. Because at that point, she was always on guard against romance with him. I just love the little peaks in the letters of Anne finally getting to have the romance she so truly deserves. Finally letting herself have the romance she deserves. The first romantic situation that Anne involves herself in is in regards to Nora Nelson. Anne is a bridesmaid to Nora's sister Sally and spends the wedding weekend at the Nelson Summer Home on the Bay,
1: helping with all the various wedding festivities. I love how Anne is Sally Nelson's bridesmaid, this position of honor, and we have not heard of Sally Nelson either before or since. (laughs) Yes, don't get attached to the Nelson family. I know. Wait, when does this happen? This happens in her first year, right? This happens at at the the end end of of her first year. end of her first year, yeah. Okay, so she's known Sally for like max nine months. I mean, I don't know. And that's pushing it. That's if Sally wasn't a Pringle related and actually talked to Anne in the first month or two of her being at Summerside. I mean, we know Anne is charming and has a genius for friendship. Even that is pushing things.
0: Well, Anne also might be a filler of a bridesmaid because she has some other friend that she doesn't want to be a bridesmaid because she's too fat. Oh, totally. That's right. So she's like, well, I need an even number. And Amy can't be, obviously. She that would she'd look terrible. So that's right. <laughs> Thanks, Lord. Sally. Thanks. Anyway. So, so classy. <laughs> Sally is the fifth of the six Nelson daughters to get married. And Nora is the last daughter to be unwed, a fact which all her family and friends seem intent on reminding Nora about constantly. Nora is not prone to being good-natured anyway, and being surrounded by both constant wedded bliss and frequent jabs about her single status, she is extra spiky and sarcastic. Early on, Anne hears from Sally, who is rebuking the terrible Aunt Mouser that, quote, Jim and Nora had some sort of quarrel last January, and he's never been round since. Aunt Mouser then throws some salt in the wound by relaying that she told Nora that Jim had been seen driving Eleanor Pringle recently. And so weird, Nora got mad and flounced off. She's so touchy. Yeah, she's having a rough couple of days here. Nora is described this way. She looked as if she might flash lightning at any moment. In spite of her daffodil-hued dress and the pearls in her dark hair, she made Anne think of a black moth. In direct contrast with Sally, who was a cool, snowy blonde, Nora Nelson had magnificent black hair, dusky eyes, heavy black brows, and velvety red cheeks. Her nose was beginning to look a trifle hawk-like, and she had never been accounted pretty, but Anne felt an odd attraction to her in spite of her sulky, smoldering expression. She felt that she would prefer Nora as a friend to the popular Sally. It is clear that Nora is muscling through the pre-wedding merriment by just clenching her teeth. And when Nora disappears from the dancing, Anne ends up finding her sitting out on the rocks by the shore. Nora, apropos of absolutely nothing, says to Anne, what would you feel like at a time like this if you had no bow?" Asked Nora abruptly and sullenly, or any likelihood of one, she added still more sullenly. Anne responds, it must be Nora's own fault if she hasn't, which inspires Nora to spill out her troubles to Anne. Nora explains that she knows that she's considered plain and isn't the kind of girl that men fall in love with. She goes on to say, I had to come down here and just let myself be unhappy. I'm tired of smiling and being agreeable to everyone and pretending not to care when they give me digs about not being married. I'm not going to pretend any longer. I do care. I care horribly. Nora has such a confusing mix of feelings going on. She wants to be married just in general, which makes sense since that's the expected path for women. And Nora is afraid of growing older alone. And everyone is telling her that she's getting older and is still single. And she's internalized the message that her more unconventional looks are responsible for not having a bevy of bows to choose from. Nora is jealous of Sally and angry and hurt at everyone talking about her, rightfully so.
1: And she's in a situation where she has to be cheerful, right? It's a party. It's her sister's wedding. And so she has to put on a happy face, even though this event is, frankly, triggering like all of her insecurities.
0: 100%. And let's talk about that for a second.
1: This sort of thing has clearly been a problem
0: for generations. Who on earth thinks that it is okay to say to someone, whether that's a stranger, a friend, a family member, when are you going to get married? Or, you know, you're just getting older as if, this is information that is groundbreaking and new to the person they are talking about, that it's helpful to say something like that. This is the height of rudeness. It's not conversation. It is rude.
1: And it's weird too. I think most people understand that whether or not you found a partner isn't, that's not a choice for most people. You know what either happens or sometimes it doesn't. And there often isn't really a predictable timetable on it. I mean, there certainly shouldn't be. You don't just flip a switch and fall in love. I'm putting pressure on people to make a match i think that's what causes a lot of unhappy relationships you know, Reagan, I have a really good friend whose younger sister got married this past summer, and you would not believe but she got so many out-of-pocket comments from relatives and family friends about being single. I mean, it was really distressing for her. You know, she of she course. was born in the situation, like tried to laugh it off, tried to be a good sport, but at a certain point, it just got to be too much. And I mean, I was just genuinely so shocked when she was telling me about it. I just was like, what year is this, right? So, I mean, it's sad to say, but this kind of behavior does persist even in 2023 and that is
0: it's crazy to me that even in 2023 we're still saying to women when are you gonna get married why aren't you married yet like Mm -hmm. look if i had something to share about this with you i would share it why would you say this
1: so yeah and then poor nora goes on to say that also she's specifically better about her relationship with jim wilcox she shares this contradiction filled tale of woe with anne like this I suppose you wouldn't care either if you'd waited years for a man to propose, and he just wouldn't? Oh, yes. I think I would care about that. Well, that's my predicament exactly. Oh, I know you've heard of Jim Wilcox and me. It's such an old story. He's been hanging around me for years, but he's never said anything about getting married. Do you care for him? Of course I care. I've always pretended I didn't, but as I've told you, I'm I'm through with pretending.
0: So it kind of appears that Nora has never let Jim know that she's at all open to a relationship, but now she's angry and upset that he never proposed.
1: Uh, (laughs) Right? This is that classic double bind that partners sometimes get caught up in. You have this belief that if your partner truly loves you, that they can anticipate or read your mind about your desires or expectations when, in fact unfortunately, awkwardly, cringely, we do have to communicate with the people that we love. <laughs> so here's poor Nora expecting that Jim has read her mind about how she really feels about him, despite giving him nothing to go on.
0: And after their last fight, Jim hasn't come back, even though he always has in the past. So Nora now feels completely hopeless and resigned to this, and she points out his house across the bay and sees... What we all can see, and she asks Nora directly, if you send for him, wouldn't he come back? And we can see Nora's contradictory thinking at full display as she responds, send for him. Do you think I do that? I die first. If he wants to come, there's nothing to prevent him coming. If he doesn't, I don't want him to. Yes, I do. I do. I love Jim and I want to
1: get married. Oh my God, she's all over the place. Nora! (laughs) she doesn't want to call for him but at the same time she does love him and she wants to marry him she's not willing to see the contradiction in you know her own perspective here And, you know, she's speaking really directly to wanting everything that comes with getting married in this section as well. She tells Anne that she wishes she had a trousseau, monogrammed linen, lovely wedding presents. She even says that she would have wanted Aunt Mauser's butter dish, which she explains to Anne that, quote, Aunt Mauser gives a butter dish to every bride. It's an awful thing with a top like the dome of St. Peter's. We could have had it on the breakfast table just to make fun of it. I kind of love that image that Nora has conjured up of here is this butter dish, right? This like symbol that everyone in the family has of their wedded bliss, I guess, but she and Jim are going to put it on their table to make fun of it, right? Like you can tell there's like a real friendship there. But, you know, as funny and kind of cute as this little moment is, it also really captures the pain you feel when your peers, your friends and your siblings and your cousins are all moving on in life in a way that you aren't. I don't think that Nora truly cares about the butter dish or the linen, right? But she does feel heartbroken that her sisters and friends are getting married when she has, frankly, made a mess of her own romantic life. She's able to confess to Anne that she loves Jim, but she doesn't seem to be able to do anything about it.
0: And I'm sure that Anne can relate to the way that Nora's pride has gotten in the way of her own happiness. Oh, can she? (laughs) Why would you say that, Anne? (laughs) Nora says that she and Jim have been friends since they were kids, and she used to put a light up in the attic window when she wanted to see him, and he'd sail across the bay right away. Quote, no other boy ever had a chance. Not that anyone wanted it, I suppose. And now it's all over. He was just tired of me and was glad of an excuse of a quarrel to get free. I mean, Nora is really telling herself a very pitiful story here. And she's not taking any responsibility for her part in their split and refuses to take any action to make things better for herself.
1: Yeah, she really is stuck in this story she's telling herself, but I feel for her because sometimes we are so deep in our sad stories that we lose all perspective. I will say, though, Anne is being a really wonderful friend to Nora in this moment. Nora half apologizes to Anne. and She says she's sure that Anne will think that Nora is awful. And Anne says, quote, I think you're very tired after all these weeks of preparation and strain, and that things which were always hard have just become too hard all at once. It's true, and it's very, very kind. I think we all know what it feels like to have everything become too hard all at once.
0: Yeah, I'm actually going to borrow that phrasing. It's a lovely, succinct way of explaining that experience. Mm -hmm. Anne can see that Nora has created a perfect trap for her own unhappiness, and she watches as Nora, wrung out and vulnerable after confessing everything to Anne, slaps a groomsman's face when he teases her by asking when he's going to dance at her wedding. The next day is the wedding day. and Nora is a perfect storm cloud. She's very capably running things behind the scenes to make her sister's wedding lovely, despite her bitterness, but she's snappy and grim throughout. After the wedding, when dinner is over and the guests are mostly gone and the young folks are out at a shore bonfire, she sets about cleaning the house and declares to Anne that she's decided to go away to train for a nurse, which she thinks she'll hate. Quote, heaven help my future patients. But she's tired of being the butt of all the teasing and staying in Summerside with no gym just seems unbearable. She snipes at Anne, who tries to put a cheerful face on the cleaning up. Anne observes her and thinks, she's so unhappy if there was anything I could do. And then here is where Anne's meddling goes from just giving advice to flat out manipulation. Anne decides to put the light up in the attic window Reasoning that if Jim sees it and comes over, great, that could break the ice that Nora has frozen herself in. And if he doesn't, well, Nora won't ever know about it, so no harm done. Anne forgets all about the light in the fun of the bonfire party, and eventually the party winds down
1: and the revelers retire to bed. Okay, so this is kind of a bananas level of interference (laughs) because I I do. I think it's one thing to ask Nora to, hey, why don't you consider lighting the lamp and see if Jim responds? And then if he does, Nora can use that opportunity to clear the air with him. But Anne is just sort of skipping that part altogether. Also, Regan, do you get like the Great Gatsby vibes from this at all? This makes me think of the green light from Daisy's dock that Gatsby watched night after night from across the bay and how for him it represented his hope that he would win Daisy and the American dream and all that stuff. And so here in this book, we have another light from across the bay also symbolizing the hope of a future together. Do we think that Maude was maybe inspired by Fitzgerald here? I double checked. And so The Great Gatsby, of course, was published before Anne of Windy Poplar's. It was published in 1925, so a little more than a decade before.
0: Maybe. But actually, it makes me think much more about how Anne and Diana used to signal each other with candles and window shades from their bedroom windows when they were kids. So I'm picturing young Nora and young Jim,
1: much like Anne and Diana. Oh, I love that. Yes. It was like their childhood method of communicating. So that night at two in the morning, Aunt Mauser wakes the girls up saying she's heard a noise downstairs, bumps and bangs and she's sure there's someone downstairs. Everyone comes out to join the exploration and sure enough, there are definitely noises coming from the library and they all barge in only to see a young man holding Nora with a large handkerchief to her face. Aunt Mauser <laughs> Aunt Mauser shrieks he's chloroforming her completely wild. to draw from that but it turns out to be jim wilcox Jim explains, sure enough, he saw Nora's signal in the window when he got home that night, and he sailed over straight away. Much confusion ensues with Nora saying she didn't signal for him, but she had seen him come up from the shore, so she came down to see what he was doing there. And then Nora ran into the door and made her nose bleed. Jim then jumped in the window, knocked over a bench, and was trying to help Nora's nosebleed when everyone arrived, right? So there's the handkerchief over her nose. <laughs> When Jim realizes that Nora didn't signal him, he's ready to leave. Obviously, he's feeling really embarrassed in this moment and vulnerable. Nora is, you know, true to form, sarcastic and icy in response, interpreting his haste to leave as rejection, even though, lest we forget, he literally just sailed across the bay the instant he saw what he thought was her signal, at one in the morning, no less, and confesses that it was her who put the light in the window, and then she forgot all about it. Now Nora is crying. In rage and in shame, her nose is bleeding. I mean, Nora is really going through it. <laughs> Aunt Mauser, Sorry. <laughs> so, just the hurt. She's so presumptuous. So Aunt Mauser then demands that Jim marry Nora because once word gets out that he was found alone with her at 2 a.m., no one else will ever marry her. Aunt Mauser, Wild. Jim responds with, marry her? What have I wanted all my life but to marry her? Never wanted anything else. Oh, Jim. When Nora demands to know why he never said so, Jim responds, Say so. You've snubbed and frozen and jeered at me for years. You've gone out of your way times without number to show me how you despised me. I didn't think it was the least use to ask you. And then they started arguing about who started their last fight. (laughs) Jim says, Well, I'll ask you now and have done with it. And you can have the fun of turning me down before all this gang. Nora Edith Nelson, will you marry me? And surprising herself, Jim, and everyone else, Nora shamelessly accepts, gasping, oh, won't I? Won't I? (laughs) They kiss, even though Nora is still covered in blood. So it's a happy ending for Anne's meddling and a happy ending for Nora and Jim.
0: Later, it turns out that if Anne had not set the light, they might not have ever gotten back together as Jim was planning to leave and go out west, probably to escape reminders of Nora. But now, the two are to be married in a very small private ceremony, but Anne will get to go as the instigator of their reconciliation. Sally says, They'll fight most of their time, but they'll be happier fighting with each other than agreeing with anybody else. Anne notes in her letter to Gilbert, I think it is just misunderstanding that makes most of the trouble in the world, you and I, for so long. This new, more mature Anne can instantly see how Nora's pride has trapped her. The Anne of just a few years ago was rejecting Gilbert's offer of a dance because of something she heard and inferences she made. But after nearly losing Gilbert to typhoid, Anne has come to see the value in being more direct, or at least as direct as young women could be at the time. Although it is a bit rich for Anne to characterize the misunderstanding between her and Gilbert as a two-way street. Oh, right. Yeah. Gilbert was relatively direct, and he took her always at her word. It was Anne that was frequently misunderstanding and throwing up barriers.
1: Reagan, I think you made a really important point about how direct a woman even could be in this era. And as I was rereading these chapters with some attention to how exactly Nora could have conveyed the depth of her care for Jim she would have been limited, truly, in a lot of ways. Unable to express her feelings directly, certainly unable to ask him on a date or propose herself. You know, Victorian girls and women were taught to encourage men in, like, really sort of oblique ways, like subtly flirting or intense eye contact or giving him and only him a second dance at a party. Sometimes they resorted to downright silly ways, like we talked about the language of flowers, for example, in episode 27. Men were supposed to just intuit, whether those veiled expressions of interest meant anything at all. Well, I do
0: think if Nora had been even vaguely nice to Jim, that could have helped. (laughs) I mean, according to Jim, Nora had only snubbed, jeered at, and frozen him out for years.
1: Even Nora said
0: she pretended she
1: didn't care for him. Oh gosh, Nora. We are our own worst enemies sometimes. In Anne's second year at Windy Poplar's, she has quite the opposite experience with meddling in romantic relationships. In this case, it concerns one Hazel Marr, a newcomer to town who is 18 and has quite latched onto Anne as her mentor and recipient of all of her dramatic monologues. Anne herself was a melodramatic teenager, to be sure, but somehow it still rang true and authentic, whereas Hazel is quite over the top in a way that seems performative. If Anne used italics liberally to emphasize her feelings, Hazel, by Maud's description, quote, emphasized at least one syllable in every word she uttered. As an example, I knew the moment I saw you that you would understand everything. We are on the same plane. Sometimes I think I must be psychic, Miss Shirley. I always know so instinctively the moment I meet anyone, whether I'm going to like them or not. I felt at once that you were sympathetic, that you would understand. It's so sweet to be understood. Nobody understands me, Miss Shirley, nobody. But when I saw you, some inner voice whispered to me, she will understand. With her, you can be your real self. Oh, Miss Shirley, let's be real. Let's always
0: be real. Kelly, when I was typing this out, I have never used the italics button more than in this one paragraph like in entire papers
1: (laughs) i think it's exhausting to speak that way with that many inflections in your speech but you know leave it to a melodramatic teenager we can see why anne enjoys hazel's company though she can clearly see her younger self in hazel after all anne's kindred spirits instincts as a child were pretty right on In contrast to Anne, Rebecca Dew characterizes Hazel as someone who, quote, had never been much good in the world since she found out she was pretty. Oh, Rebecca (laughs) Dew. But Anne finds Hazel refreshing with her romantic ideals and enthusiasms. We meet Hazel as she's confessing to Anne her current romantic conundrum. She is recently engaged to Terry, who is more like 22 to Hazel's very young 18. Hazel confides that she thought she loved Terry when she accepted his proposal, but now she knows it was a mistake. Oh, Miss Shirley, you can't dream how difficult my life is, how impossible. And of course, Anne has, not that long ago, had a similar experience with Roy Gardner, so she does know. Anne at least paid attention to her instincts and turned Roy down when it got as far as proposals, and she was absolutely racked with guilt about it young anne had imagined that type of situation as dizzyingly romantic but once she was in it realized it was not romantic at all hazel by contrast is positively enjoying being the center of this drama Anne, having been there herself advises the direct approach and not to draw it out naturally hazel feels this to be impossible as quote it would kill him he simply adores me there isn't any way out of it really The more Hazel moans that she wants Anne's advice because she feels like she's a trapped creature, the more she ignores Anne's advice. (laughs) I truly, I think what Hazel wants is an audience and sympathy. When Anne suggests that the way out is simple, even if it temporarily hurts Terry, Hazel goes on and on about the impossibility of her position, going so far as to say that maybe she doesn't want to be married at all because she wants a career, imagining herself first as a nun and the bride of heaven. Despite not being Catholic, and then as a nurse, which is, quote, such a romantic profession, don't you think? Soothing fevered brows and all that, and some handsome millionaire patient falling in love with you and carrying you off to spend a honeymoon in a villa on the Riviera, facing the morning sun and blue Mediterranean. I've seen myself in it. Foolish dreams, perhaps, but oh so sweet. I can't give them up for the prosaic reality of marrying Terry Garland and settling down in Summerside.
0: And again, we can see why Anne is sympathetic, because she had similar main character energy as a teen herself. She couldn't see Gilbert as her romantic partner because he was not a mysterious romantic ideal. Right. Hazel, in fact, wonders if she's the reincarnation of Cleopatra. Or, quote, would it be Helen of Troy? One of those languorous, seductive creatures, anyhow. I have such wonderful thoughts and feelings. I don't know where I get them if that isn't the explanation. And that pretty much tops anything Anne ever thought about herself.
1: I love that she attributes her extreme moods to being the reincarnation of Cleopatra. Well, after bemoaning Terry's prosaic
0: nature with some nonsensical story, she asks Anne to talk to Terry for her. Quote, just talk to him. Tell him what I feel like. He thinks you're wonderful. He'd be guided by what you say. Anne says it would be better if Hazel talks to him herself. But Hazel feels that if Anne doesn't talk to him, quote, there isn't any help anywhere. Hazel goes on to dramatically declare, I shall never love anybody again. Love only brings sorrow. Young as I am, I've learned that. This would make a wonderful plot for one of your stories, wouldn't it, Miss Shirley? There's that main character energy
1: made explicit. Exactly right. Someone write a story about this girl or, at the very least, get her a TikTok account.
0: Oh, thank God Hazel was not around in the era of TikTok. (laughs) Well, Hazel swirls out amid raptures from Anne's compliment of her appearance. And we get this little nugget of a callback to young Anne. Hazel says, I hope heaven will be all flowers. One could be good if one lived in a lily, couldn't one? And Anne Anne, the very girl who once declared she'd like to live as a bee in an apple blossom, says, I'm afraid it might be a little confining. (laughs) Has Anne not become Marilla's daughter? Wow. Also, I kind of think that's what an hour with Hazel Mars over the top dramatic pronouncements does to even the most sympathetic of a listener. It turns out that
1: Anne is more than willing to take Hazel at her word about wanting to break up with Terry because Anne has a rather poor opinion of Terry. She thinks him a rather weak young man who would, quote, fall in love with the first pretty girl who made eyes at him and would, with equal facility, fall in love with the next one if number one turned him down or left him alone too long. Anne is frequently called on to chaperone Hazel and Terry, and when Hazel goes off to visit friends in Kingsport for a few weeks, Terry attaches himself to Anne as the two more mature folks in the youthful set of Summerside. And then one evening at a party, Terry joins Anne outside in the garden and became so sentimental that Anne had to remind him of Hazel. (laughs) (laughs) The text doesn't tell us exactly what Terry says to start this exchange. But when Anne does remind him of Hazel, Terry calls her that child and then goes on to say they aren't, quote, really engaged. Nothing but some boy and girl nonsense. I I guess I was swept off my feet by the moonlight. I'm in a bit of a predicament, I'll own. I'm afraid Hazel has taken me a little bit too seriously. And I don't just know the best way to open her eyes to her mistake. Her mistake, Terry anyway. (laughs) But Anne seizes her chance to sort out this whole thing for Terry and Hazel. She just straight up tells him, hey, Hazel feels the exact same way, but she was afraid to hurt Terry by telling him herself. And Anne is very impressed with herself with this line, quote, she's just a bewildered romantic girl and you're a boy in love with love and someday you'll both have a good laugh at yourselves. After this, Terry seems rather relieved by it all, and then he goes on to hit on Anne a little more directly. He says, well, when one meets a woman, the woman, you're you're not going in yet, Anne. Is all this good moonlight to be wasted? You look like a white rose in the moonlight, a- Anne. <laughs> that guy is such a goof. Ugh. So Anne wisely makes herself scarce and congratulates herself on her direct action and on saving her friend Hazel the headache. And then, a few weeks later, as Anne is battling a head cold and correcting exam papers, Hazel comes storming into Anne's tower room. Yes, Miss Shirley, I am back. And what do I find? That you have been doing your best to lure Terry away from me and all but succeeding. Hazel goes on to accuse Anne of telling Terry that she didn't love him and that she wanted to break their sacred engagement. Anne is gobsmacked and reminds Hazel that she had asked Anne to do that very thing. Hazel denies it and says she was just in a mood and thought that Anne would, quote, understand my artistic temperament. (laughs) And then Hazel starts laying on the passive-aggressive insults. Your age is older than I am, of course, but even you can't have forgotten the crazy way girls talk, feel. Anne is at most six years older than Hazel at this point, but Hazel lays it on thick. Oh, if that is what being old does to you, jealous of younger people's happiness and determined to wreck it, I shall pray never to grow old. It's extremely funny, and it's made all the funnier to the reader by Anne's frequent sneezes throughout all of Hazel's dramatic pronouncements. Anne's indulgence of Hazel is sorely tested, and Maud tells us, quote, Anne's hand suddenly tingled to box Hazel's ears with a strange, horrible, primitive tingle of desire. She slew it so instantly. That she never would believe afterwards that she had really felt it but she did think a little gentle chastisement was indicated if you can't sit down and talk sensibly hazel i wish you would go away a very violent crush i have work to do sniff sniff snuffle hazel will not go away until she said her piece and she rages at Anne that she knew instinctively the first time i saw you that you were dangerous that red hair and those green eyes Yes, so, so dangerous, Hazel. (laughs) And then Hazel goes on wailing about her wedding plans with, quote, four bridesmaids in lovely pale blue silk dresses with black velvet ribbon on the flounces that are, of course, now all ruined. Anne calls her a little goose, and she thinks you can't have many exclamation points left, but no doubt the supply of italics is inexhaustible. (laughs) as Hazel bemoans that it will never be like it used to be and that, quote, you don't know what suffering is. It is terrible, terrible. Anne is remorseless and tells her frankly, then don't suffer. But of course, Hazel has the deepest feelings that ever there were and insinuates that Anne has no idea what love is and that she is betrayed to her very soul. When Anne reminds Hazel of her ambitions and her career as a nurse, Hazel says she has no idea what she's talking about. I'm not one of those dreadful new women. My highest ambition was to be a happy wife and make a happy home for my husband. At this point, Anne is done. And she tells Hazel that she had better go, since nothing productive is coming out of this conversation. Hazel dramatically, of course, stalks off and Anne gives herself a serious talking to. Be honest with yourself, my dear girl, and take your medicine like a gallant lady. Admit that you were carried off your feet by flattery. Admit that you really like Hazel's professed adoration for you. Admit that you found it pleasant to be worshipped. Admit that you liked the idea of being a sort of dea ex machina, saving people from their own folly when they didn't in the least want to be saved from it.
0: There's a postscript to this episode a week later, with Anne receiving a letter from Hazel, which is just as full of italics and poisonously polite insults as can be. I mean, honestly, the whole thing is a masterwork, but here's a delicious little snippet. Terry says he was just moonlighted into making love to you, but that his heart never really swerved in its allegiance to me. He says he really likes sweet, simple girls that all men do and is no use for intriguing designing ones. And then there's this outrageous abuse of italics. Terry is all my wildest dreams could picture, and every thought of my heart is for him alone. I know we are going to be rapturously happy. Once, I believed all my friends would rejoice with me in my happiness, but I have learned a bitter lesson in worldly wisdom since then. She concludes with this little P.S. I've heard that lemon juice will bleach freckles. You might want to try it on your nose. I am absolutely dying over this whole escapade. It's honestly one of the funniest things in this book to me. We can see how easily the romanticism and poetry and dramatic bent of young Anne can go so easily off the rails in someone like Hazel. Why is it that Anne is charming and Hazel is maddening?
1: Oh, I know. Hazel is so frustrating in this, but I I love when Anne is telling herself, like, admit it, admit that you were kind of taken in by her and that you liked being her sort of mentor and confidant. And it's funny, right, how Anne gets this little moment of turnabout where she gets to see where Marilla was coming from all those years ago, right? I also think that Maude may be doing something rather sly with Hazel In a way, I think she's critiquing Anne of Green Gables itself by demonstrating that whimsy only works if it's paired with authenticity.
0: You know, Rebecca Dew says pretty much the same thing when she wonders why Anne puts up with Hazel initially. Anne had said at the time, I was a dreadful little chatterbox when I was a child. I wonder if I sounded as silly to the people who had to listen to me as Hazel does sometimes. Rebecca Dew responded with, I didn't know you when you was a child, but I'm sure you didn't, because you would mean what you said, no matter how you expressed it. And Hazel Marr doesn't. She's
1: nothing but skim milk pretending to be cream. I almost wonder if Maude saw some copycat ants out there in the intervening years and in her own subtle way wanted to call that out. That's an interesting thought, right? I also think it's notable that Hazel is a good bit older than Anne, right? Like Anne and her most fanciful, we're talking about like 11, 12, 13 years old. But Remember, by the time she's like 14, 15 years old, she's off at Queen's Academy. And by the time she's 16 years old, she's teaching school in her own right. By the time she was 18, she was not still this silly. She had grown up pretty significantly. I think that's a good point, even when we talk about
0: Hazel wondering what it's like to live in a lily and Anne wondering what it was like to live in an apple blossom. You know, Anne was 11 when she thought that and Hazel's 18.
1: Or even if we think about, I, I know we we both had a good laugh in our Anne of Avonlea episodes when we were talking about Anne's birthday picnic where she's drinking out of the birch bark. You know, she's 16 there, I think, right? And mm-hmm. you know, okay, maybe that's a little silly for 16, but Anne seemed to be kind of self-conscious of it as being a little silly. Certainly she was not carrying on like that when she was 18. No, definitely
0: not. Our last romantic situation for Anne occurs in her last year at Windy Poplar's. This is in regards to the relationship between Jarvis Morrow and Dovey Westcott.
1: I love both these names. Jarvis and Dovey? Dovey. And I love the name Dovey. These are great names. Somebody go name your kids Jarvis and Dovey.
0: Love it. Well, apparently, all the folks at Windy Poplar's are highly invested in this situation because Aunt Kate is a second cousin of Dovey's on her mother's side. Dovey, whose real name is Sybil, is the daughter of Franklin Westcott, and her mother had died when Dovey was young. Aunt Kate hates Franklin Westcott because she had been close in childhood with Dovey's mother and avows that Franklin Westcott, who is, quote, a tall, somber, hard-bitten merchant, close and unsociable, practically killed his wife by being so overbearing that she was, quote, unable to call her soul her own. Eeks. In any case, Jarvis is widely understood to be an excellent match for Dovey. Jarvis is a Pringle, naturally, and he is Jen Pringle's favorite cousin.
1: Mm.
0: He's also a successful young lawyer and is understood to be a very nice, decent young man. The issue is, Dovey and Jarvis have been engaged for over a year, but there's been no progress forward. In fact, Dovey's father doesn't even know that they are engaged. It turns out that Franklin Westcott had never let Dovey have any bows, and when Jarvis first began to pay attention to Dovey, Franklin banned him from the house and told Dovey she wasn't to see him anymore but it was too late. The two were already in love. Everyone in town agrees that Franklin is completely unreasonable and they suspect he has just made up his mind that Dovey is to be an old maid so he can be sure of a housekeeper when his old aunt Maggie dies. No one has any influence on Franklin. He's terribly sarcastic and he throws tantrums. A Miss Prouty described that once she was overdoing the sewing and he got so mad at something, he just started grabbing objects and flinging them out the window. Apparently, quote, Milton's poems went flying clean over the fence into George Clark's lily pond.
1: Okay, wait, is this the same Miss Prouty who wouldn't babysit the terrible twins? I think so. (laughs) She's Miss Prouty.
0: (laughs) So it appears that the young lovers are stuck unless they are willing to elope. Anne is, of course, invested in this romantic drama. She tells Gilbert, I don't know what to do, but I must do something. I simply can't sit still and see people make a mess of their lives under my very nose, no matter how many tantrums Franklin Westcott takes. This is clearly the mindset Anne is operating with for this entire book, and her experiences with Nora and Jim and the Cyrus Taylor family are definitely informing her here as well. She has rather conveniently forgotten about Hazel Marr, though.
1: Right. She's only remembering her wins, really. And she's all like, oh, I can charm all the cranks. We'll figure this out. (laughs) True love will conquer all. So the word around town is that Jarvis is getting tired of waiting and hiding in the shadows. And that he has been seen cutting Dovey's name out of a tree where he had cut into it before. The time is coming. They have to act soon. So the good news for Anne is that Jarvis asks her directly for advice. And Anne counsels, you'll have to run away with her, Jarvis. Everybody says so. As a rule, I don't approve of elopements. I said that like a teacher of 40 years experience, thought Anne with an unseen grin. But there are exceptions to all rules. Jarvis agrees, but says the problem is Dovey is so afraid of her father that she won't do it. He even says that it won't be a real elopement, that they can engage a minister to meet them at Jarvis's sister's house, be married with the family there, and then just jaunt over to Kingsport for a honeymoon. It's all set, really. Everyone will just go along. (laughs) But Dovey won't dare it because, quote, the poor darling has been giving in to her father's whims and crotchets so long, she hasn't any willpower left shades of the cyrus taylor family indeed anne responds that jarvis will have to make her do it and of course if jarvis knew how he would have done it already he has begged her and begged her and she will almost promise when they're together but as soon as she's home she sends word that she can't quote the poor child is really fond of her father and she can't bear the thought of his never forgiving her Anne is getting quite straightforward these days, perhaps seeing so many people around her get twisted about because they can't speak directly, has finally tried her patience. Anne tells him that he will need to say that Dovey has to choose between her father and him. When Jarvis describes Dovey as, quote, a little red rose just out of reach, I must reach her. Anne says, quote, poetry is a very good thing in its place, but it won't get you anywhere in this instance, Jarvis. That sounds like a remark Rebecca Du would make, but it's quite true. What you need in this affair is plain, hard, common sense. Tell Dubby you're tired of shilly-shallying and that she must take you or leave you. If she doesn't care enough about you to leave her father for you, it's just as well for you to realize it. I mean, 16-year-old Anne would never. <laughs> she really is growing up. Jarvis does agree, though he has to take a stand. I mean, at this point, he's starting to feel ridiculous and like a figure of fun. So he does just that. And Dovey comes to Anne for advice. Of course, because Anne is the only person in Sunnyside who gives advice, I guess. 100%. (laughs) Dovey comes to Anne for advice on what to do just a few nights later. Dovey wants Anne to tell her what to do. Oh, Anne, you don't know, father. He just hates Jarvis. I can't imagine why. Can you? How can anybody hate Jarvis? When he called on me the first time, father forbade him the house and told him that he'd set the dog on him if he ever came again, and he'll never forgive me if I run away with Jarvis. Anne directly tells her that she has to choose, and when Dovey wails that she can't live without Jarvis, Anne says, then live with him, my dear girl. Dovey says she's going to take Anne's advice and tell Jarvis to get the marriage license, and they will get married next week, the night her father will be in Charlottetown. The day of the planned elopement is gloomy and dreary. Anne is having
0: second thoughts about her meddling. Poor Dovey hasn't a very nice day for her wedding. Suppose, suppose, she quaked and shivered. Suppose it doesn't turn out well after all. It will be my fault. Devlin would never have agreed to it if I hadn't advised her to. And suppose Franklin Westcott never forgives her. Anne, Shirley, stop this. The weather is all that's the matter with you. When the rain stops and night falls, there comes a thunderous knock at the door. And it's Jarvis. He's flustered and wild and he says that Dovey hasn't come and they've waited for hours. The minister is waiting. His sister has made a beautiful supper. Dovey was supposed to meet him at the end of the lane and he doesn't know why she hasn't come. He doesn't dare go up to the house himself because it's possible that Franklin Westcott came back early or her Aunt Maggie suspected and locked her in her room. He begs Anne to go and find out for him because apparently Anne is the only real
1: friend Dovey has. Which, what? How is that even possible? But okay, Let's- no seriously, how is Anne's everybody's best friend and confidant in this whole town? Really, we've never heard of Dovey a second before. I am exhausted thinking about what her social calendar must look like. She. <laughs> of a high school Anne is busy also she has her own friends she i'm sure she's keeping up a correspondence with like diana and jane and phil and priscilla and stella and all these friends that she really like lived with and loved not to mention her correspondence with gilbert that we see and then apparently she's somehow also friends with like every unmarried girl in summerside this yep is thing.
0: yep absolutely But Anne agrees to go because, you know,
1: in for a penny, in for a pound. Well, and also Anne has to find out what's keeping Dovey, right? She's so invested.
0: So she arrives and Aunt Maggie says that Dovey is up in bed. And Aunt Maggie seems to have no reason why Dovey was apparently in a dither all day. Anne goes up to Dovey's room and she's crying in bed when Anne comes in. And Dovey whines, oh, Anne, I'm so unhappy. I've put in such a dreadful day. You can never, never know what I've gone through. Anne is not fooling around. I know what poor Jarvis has gone through waiting for two hours at that lane in the cold and drizzle, said Anne mercilessly. Dovey wails that she can't go through with it. There's something so disgraceful about eloping, Anne, and I wouldn't get any nice presents. Well, not many, anyhow. And I've always wanted to be married in a church with lovely decorations and a a white veil and a
1: dress and silver slippers. Now, this is reminding me of Nora a little bit, right? Nora also saying that she wants like some of those trappings of being a bride. I want a trousseau. I want monogrammed linen. I want a white veil and silver slippers. It's interesting to me that both these girls are so unwilling to seize their fate in these moments, but also very clearly seem to have their weddings planned out.
0: (laughs) Well, Anne is done with this foolishness, and she orders Duffy to get out of bed and get dressed. She reminds Duffy that if she doesn't come right now, Jarvis will likely never speak to her again for making a fool out of him. Dovey keeps coming up with excuses. She doesn't have anything to wear. She doesn't have a trousseau. She admits she didn't even start thinking about those details until last night, and of course, she's still worried about her father. Anne gives her a deadline of 10 minutes, and that makes Dovey finally move. Anne packs her a little bag and gathers up her hat and coat and finally gets her out the door. Jarvis is a bit annoyed with Dovey on the drive and they have to hustle as it's already almost 10 p.m. and they need to catch the 11 p.m. train. But as soon as Dovey is married to Jarvis, decision irrevocably made, She feels much better and is sweet and cheerful. Oh yeah, and by the way, Anne, could you please go and break the news to her father? Oh, of course, Dovey
1: won't do it herself.
0: She just knows that Anne can smooth it over and get him to forgive her if anybody can do it. Quote, Anne felt she rather needed some smoothing over herself just then. But she also felt rather uneasily responsible for the outcome of the affair, so she gave the required promise. Dovey says that her father will of course be terrible, but comforts Anne with, but
1: he can't kill you. So. Okay, good luck. Hold comfort indeed. He can't kill you. Ay ay ay. So the next day, Anne takes herself rather reluctantly over to the Westcots. Franklin isn't home just yet, but is expected shortly on the train from Charlottetown. So Anne waits in the library for him, a cozy, cheerful room full of books. Franklin is gruff when he meets Anne, not even offering a handshake. So Anne gets right to the point. I've come to tell you that Dubby has married Jarvis Morrow. Anne braces for an explosion, but Franklin Westcott's expression doesn't change. And he asks, when? So Anne tells him it was last night at Jarvis's sister's house. And then, to Anne's complete surprise, he starts laughing. Or rather, it's like that weird kind of like soundless laughter. So Anne plows ahead saying that he shouldn't blame Dovey. It wasn't her fault. It was Anne who advised her to be married. I I made her do it. So please forgive her, Mr. Westcott. And then this revelation comes straight from Franklin Westcott's mouth. Quote, If you've managed to make Sybil elope with Jarvis Morrow, Miss Shirley, you've accomplished more than I ever thought anybody could. I was beginning to be afraid she'd never have backbone enough to do it. And then I'd have to back down. And lord, how we Westcots hate backing down. You've saved my face, Miss Shirley, and I'm profoundly grateful to you. What? Anne is struck into silence. Franklin guesses that she was afraid to break the news to him, and you know, rightly so, so the whole story comes out. Franklin relays that he had picked Jarvis out for W when they were kids, but he knew that the men of the Morrow family don't like what they can easily get. Quote, they're determined to get a thing when they're told they can't. They always go by contraries. And there is yet another example of how family reputation and family identity is so important in Summerside. So as soon as W was old enough that boys started to notice her, Franklin made a big deal of shooing the boys away, and that's what made Jarvis pay attention. And luckily for Franklin, Jarvis really did like W once he got to know her. But, Franklin says, I knew exactly what would happen. Sybil would fall head over heels in love with him, and he'd be tired of her in no time. I knew he wouldn't keep on wanting her if she was too easy to get. So I forbade him to come near the place, and forbade Sybil to have a word to say to him. Talk about the charm of the uncaught. It's nothing to the charm of the uncatchable. And clearly, despite the stereotyping of the Moro men, Franklin is on to something because Jarvis basically admitted this a few times during this episode, including this telling line to Anne, quote, Franklin Westcott said I should never get his daughter. I'll show him he was mistaken. So it seems like Franklin Westcott knew exactly what he was doing. He completely had Jarvis's number and worked a long game. He just didn't realize <laughs> that the real problem was going to be Dovey. <laughs> Exactly. So he Franklin admits his plan got tripped up because
0: of Dovey's spinelessness. He's blaming this on Dovey's lack of pluck, but it sounds to me like he raised a compliant child who obeyed her father's demands and made it seem like she would be disowned for going behind his back and then was bummed that she couldn't
1: stand up to him. I know. What did he really expect in this situation? If I know. Anne's Jarvis from the house says, oh, he, he, this boy can never darken my door. What is his kid supposed to think?
0: Yeah. How Franklin thought he could raise a child to have a backbone while being so scary. All the boys stayed away from Dovey out of fear and having tantrums that involved throwing books. I mean, it doesn't work that way. As Jarvis says to Anne, you haven't been under the thumb of Franklin Westcott all your life. You haven't any realization of what he's like. So I don't really know what Franklin was expecting here. If you don't have the kind of home where it's safe for your kid to disagree with you, what do you think is going to happen? By the way, this happens to parents all the time. They want their kids to be fearless out in the world, to be independent and stand up for themselves and for others, but they don't want them to do it at home with their parents. So you can't get it both ways. But anyway, Franklin Westcott did not ask me for parenting advice. He should have. Honestly. But he does invite Anne to tell him the whole story, which she does. He says, I see I'm more in your debt even than I thought. She'd never have got up the courage to do it if it hadn't been for you. And Jarvis Morrow wouldn't have risked being made a fool of twice, not if I know the breed. Gosh, but I've had a narrow escape. Franklin also says that he knows he has a reputation for being, quote, a tyrant and made my poor wife's life miserable and ruled my family with a rod of iron. Anne shares that she didn't take it with a grain of salt because it was clear that Dovey was truly fond of her father. Franklin says, My wife was a happy woman. She was the prettiest woman in Summerside. Had to be. I couldn't have stood it if a man had walked into church with a handsomer wife than me. I ruled my household as a man should, but not tyrannically. Oh, of course, I had a spell of temper now and then, but Molly didn't mind them after she got used to them. A man has a right to have a row with his wife now and then, hasn't he? Women get tired of monotonous husbands. Besides, I always gave her a ring or a necklace or some such god after I calmed down. There wasn't a woman in Summerside had more nice jewelry. Anne asks about the book of Milton's poems that he reportedly threw, and he clarifies that it was Tennyson's poetry. Tennyson's too sickly sweet, so I guess that's fine. Uh, So listeners, obviously this passage is clearly a product of his time, because this is the textbook definition of the cycle of abuse. An abusive incident, then an over-the-top apology, often a gift to apologize and make up, with then a honeymoon period, and then a period of slow building tension with the victim tiptoeing around so as not to set off the abuser until there's another explosion and the cycle starts all over. Even if the abuser never lays a finger on the victim, violence towards objects, screaming, yelling, etc., still make for an abusive environment. So... Please, if that describes your relationship, please know it's not normal or okay. I do think our understanding of what goes into a healthy relationship has evolved and improved over time. So I understand that at this time, Maude was playing this dynamic for laughs. But also, it was just sort of understood that men get into
1: tempers. And that's just the way it was. Boo. Boo. I, I really hate this. And, I, you know, looking at this with contemporary eyes, it's hard to read this as the kind of humorous incident that Maud is going for here. And I'm honestly very sorry for all the people at this time who would have read this and just laughed it off and shrugged it off. And it's like, oh, well, haha, you know, men, sometimes they throw books. I'm glad that we're moving past that as a culture. Me too. In any
0: case, Franklin reiterates how grateful he is that Anne intervened, and his plan is, quote, to pretend to be heartbroken and resigned and forgive her sadly for the sake of her poor mother. I'll do it beautifully. Jarvis must never suspect. He ends their conversation with, quote, there's more than one way to skin a cat. It can be done so the animal will never know he lost its hide. And that's clearly been a theme with a lot of the tales of difficult people throughout this book. And Anne's reputation for managing difficult people just got another point in its favor. So how do we feel about Franklin Westcott's manipulation of Dovey and Jarvis? That seems pretty overbearing and high-handed to me. In this case, I am glad Anne meddled, although I do hope that Jarvis now truly loves Dovey for herself and can be content now that they're married.
1: I know now I'm nervous for Debbie and Jarvis right now, knowing that apparently all the men in Jarvis's family aren't interested in their wives once they've caught them or whatever. I've just poor Debbie, She had to be so courageous to go off with him in the first place. I hope it's worth her while in the end here. I hope so, too. Well,
0: in the end, Anne got two wins and one loss in her column for positive outcomes of her meddling in romances. How do we think Anne would have felt if someone meddled with her situation with Gilbert? Would that have avoided
1: some of the drama? Okay, well, plenty of people tried. I think about Miss Lavender telling Anne point blank that Anne and Gilbert were made for each other. And Philippa Gordon told Anne that she was an idiot for refusing Gilbert's first proposal. Certainly Marilla and Mrs. Lind did their part, remember, by giving Anne and Gilbert lots of alone time together in the Green Gables parlor. And, you know, even Mrs. Allen gave Anne a little tiny nudge toward Gilbert and Anne of Avonlea. So, I mean, there were people trying, but ultimately the only real meddling was when Phil wrote to Gilbert and told him that Anne and Roy weren't engaged after all and that he should shoot his shot again. And that was barely meddling compared to some of what Anne got up to in this book. Practically restrained our Phil.
0: I do think that part of the reason Anne is tempted to meddle is that now that her relationship with Gilbert is settled, she can see more clearly how she had trapped herself for so long between her pride and her overly romantic ideals, and she doesn't want anyone else to waste their time like she did. But sometimes, I don't know if there's a shortcut to that kind of growing up. Sometimes yeah. you do just have to learn the hard way.
1: Okay, so before we wind up our story club on our last episode of Wendy Poplar's, I have to ask, Reagan: did you end up liking this book now that we've discussed it to death?
0: That's a very good question Kelly. Okay, so first of all, I in general have liked Windy Poplar's more than the average Anne
1: reader. That's right. You you do like Windy Poplar's.
0: So, but it is interesting. I really think about it a lot differently. Like there's some things that I thought were funny when I was a kid, like some of the stuff with Franklin Westcott throwing things or the Cyrus Taylor yes scenario. I did think that they were funny when I was a kid. And now as an adult, I'm like, ah, danger, red alert, red alert. Right. But I also find Hazel, let's say far funnier now as an adult looking back on it than maybe I did as a kid.
1: I have to say that I got a lot out of our recap of this. I think we had some really interesting discussions about some of the themes in this book, and especially some of the people. I thought our episode on how not to parent was really (laughs) interesting. And reading this book through the lens of like, you know, this is Anne at a time of her life where she's thinking about what kind of mother does she want to be? What kind of wife does she want to be? What kind of household does she want to have? And looking at all of these examples of what she Definitely shouldn't do. It was a really interesting perspective on the book. I I think I quite enjoyed it at the end. I'm I'm ready to be a Wendy Poplar's apologist at this point.
0: Yeah, I think that there's a stronger through line than I ever thought of before. Uh And I think it does something very interesting in terms of connecting young Anne, child Anne, with her more settled adulthood self. And Uh I think that this book kind of does a good job. Illustrating Anne's path to maturity.
1: I, I really think that's right. And, you know, we should give this book more credit. Well, why don't you launch into our last Birch Path of Windy Poplars? Sure. One of the most fun things about Anne of Windy Poplars is that it's an epistolary novel. So I want to talk about epistolary novels generally in our Birch Path. So epistolary novel refers to works of fiction that are written in the form of letters or other documents. And specifically, the word epistolary is the adjective form of the noun epistol, which is derived from the Latinized Greek word for letter. Epistolary novels are some of the earliest novels ever written, which if you think about it really makes sense because people were already familiar with letter writing as a method of storytelling, right? If you received a letter from someone, that's like reading a a short story. And so that was a pretty pretty easy bridge to get people into sort of a fictional narrative. As novels emerged in Europe in the 16th and 17th centuries, authors would often use letters as a foundation of the narrative, which gave readers a chance to hear from characters in their own voices. So that also added realism and psychological insight. And this all kind of makes sense. Before authors had really perfected that third-person omniscient POV that we are really commonly familiar with now, a good way to get inside everybody's head was letters shared between the characters. So the first novel in English to be composed entirely of letters is usually considered to be Love Letters Between a Nobleman and His Sister, which was published in 1684 and attributed to the playwright and author Aphra Ben. Now, Ben is something of a heroine for women writers because she was one of the first women to make her living by writing and one of the first people to publish a novel in English. I also mentioned Aphra Ben a couple episodes ago as one of the playwrights who was writing restoration comedies of manners. So she was just an incredibly creative creative woman who was just doing the most at a time when women weren't allowed to do much of anything. In Nobleman and His Sister, Ben's choice to focus the narrative in the form of letters increased that realism and made readers feel as though they were privy to a secret and private correspondence. So it wasn't just good storytelling, it also felt a little salacious. In the mid-18th century, Samuel Richardson made the epistolary novel ultra-popular with Pamela in 1740, and then the even more massive Clarissa of 1748. The full title of Pamela is really helpful here, because it tells the readers exactly what they were getting into. The title is Pamela, or Virtue Rewarded, in a series of familiar letters from a beautiful young damsel to her parents. Doesn't quite roll trippingly off the tongue in today's world, but at the time, it was really quite a title because everybody knows a beautiful young damsel, and of course, instantly only wants the best for her. So you've got that hook right there. But in case that wasn't enough, the word familiar is also notable because it signaled to readers that the letters would be about the intimate domestic details of a household. Add to that the fact that these are letters, so the reader knows they will be relatively easy to read and informal. And there you have it Pamela was a slam dunk and a huge hit in its day. Both of Richardson's novels were incredibly popular and set off the fad for epistolary novels. And as the form developed through the 18th century, authors added more perspectives. So instead of a book composed of letters from one or two people, a book might contain letters from several people. And that allowed authors to play with perspective and point of view. The fashion for epistolary novels waned a little in the 19th century, but there are still several notable examples. The Tenant of Wildfell Hall by Anne Bronte, Lady Susan by Jane Austen, Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, and Dracula by Bram Stoker. And Dracula, especially, is a book that really pushed the genre forward. Whereas other epistolary novels had used letters and sometimes diary entries, Dracula used found writings generally. In Dracula, Stoker uses numerous different documents and records, including newspaper clippings, laboratory logs, dictation cylinders, and telegraphs. And those last two represented up-to-the-minute technologies in Stoker's day. So the result is not just this multimedia story, telling, but it's also incredibly suspenseful because the reader ends up knowing more about what's going on than any single character in the book, and the reader can see or anticipate what is going to happen more clearly than any character can. So Stoker really took the epistolary form and elevated it to a place where it created this incredible dramatic tension and terror. Since Dracula, writers are still having a ton of fun with epistolary novels, and especially this idea of using lots of various media to tell a story. Some books that this makes me think of are Flowers for Algernon by Daniel Keyes, which tells the story of scientific experiments on human intelligence through lab reports and through the diary of the test subject. Stephen King's horror novel Carrie is also composed of found materials from op-eds in the student paper to police reports. There's a book called Dear Committee Members by Julie Schumacher. This is a more recent book. It's hilarious. And it uses academic letters of recommendation, interdepartmental email and text messages to satirize a college English department. And then the very popular book Where'd You Go Bernadette by Maria Semple also uses email but invoices and school memos also to tell the story of a daughter looking for her mother. Another example of this is in Jennifer Egan's Pulitzer Prize winning A Visit from the Goon Squad, which hilariously includes a chapter written entirely in PowerPoint slides.
0: Kelly, do you remember we read in our book club, the book Hey Ladies by Caroline Moss
1: and Michelle Markowitz? I loved Hey Ladies. That is a great, great example of an epistolary novel.
0: Yeah, and more modern using text messages and emails and I think transcribed voicemails in some of them.
1: So, And it's like the story of, I think it's like five or six women's friendships. And it's so funny because it's like there's the email that goes out to the whole group and then there's all the side texts and everything like that. And you really get the whole messy picture. (laughs) Well, I really adore epistolary fiction. And honestly, for a lot of the same reasons that readers in Samuel Richardson's day did. These are books that tend to be informal. They have conversational narratives that have this sort of interesting puzzle element as you piece together all the different perspectives. And you know what? Also, I was thinking about this as an attorney. (laughs) This is kind of my job, right? Really? Really? Well, yeah, because I do a lot of fact finding, but it's always based on disparate or contradictory statements, different people's accounts of the same events. That's actually one of the parts of the job that I enjoy the most, right? Piecing together all the documents, all the different statements, all the different forms and who said what, when, trying to muddle through and figure out what the truth of the matter is and all of that. And I I have to say, reviewing thousands of pages of documents is only fun when you can find all those little dramas and stories playing out behind the scenes. You really live for those snarky one-liners in an email or a well-placed emoji in a Teams chat. (laughs) But in a novel, I really appreciate that these stories are told from a place of subjective perspective that can never accurately capture who said what or how they said it or what they meant to say or what they did or what precisely happened or when it happened because everything is filtered through the mind and lived experience of the teller. There's always an element of doubt and the reader is always slightly uneasy that they will never know the full truth. And there is still that little salacious thrill, just like those readers of Pamela nearly 300 years ago, that the reader is intruding on something private, something that makes them complicit in the story. I didn't know so much
0: of the history of epistolary novels.
1: Yeah, I think when I was doing the research on this, the thing that I thought was most interesting was that this was sort of a gateway drug into novels. (laughs) Yeah, everybody knows what it's like to read a letter. And then that's just another way to tell a story. Well, I hadn't thought of
0: the idea that people had to learn how to read novels. Well, let's pivot a little bit. And let's talk about our puffed sleeves this week. And Kelly and I decided that we kind of have the same puffed sleeve idea this week, which is we wanted to talk about the very few romantic moments for Anne herself in this book. We get very little of Gilbert on the page. We only get Anne's letters, so we don't know what he writes to her, but we absolutely love the brief little glimpses we get into their romance. So one of the fun little through lines of the book is that Anne will often either open or close her letters to Gilbert with an extremely flowery salutation or sign off. Also, did you know that the fancy word for a letter sign off is a
1: valediction? I did not know that. I did not know that either. What a great vocab word. I know.
0: So Anne has pulled these out of Aunt Chatty's grandmother's love letters. For instance, addressing her letter to Gilbert as honored and respected, sir, and signing off with your tenderest, most faithful friend. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Anne Anne writes to Gilbert, that is how a love letter of Aunt Chatty's grandmother began. Isn't it delicious? What a thrill of superiority it must have given the grandfather. Wouldn't you really prefer it to Gilbert, darling, etc.? But on the whole, I think I'm glad you're not the grandfather or a grandfather. It's wonderful to think we're young and have our whole lives before us together isn't it? And then Anne's pen, being in perfect condition, hints to a love letter because the next several
1: pages are omitted. What? were are in those pages. I'm dying to know. Justice for the readers. We need to know. Well, okay. I think this is part of the
0: reason why readers have been so frustrated with the Anne of Windy Poplars for so many years because yeah. we finally get Anne and Gilbert together and we don't get... To see them be
1: romantic. I know. I have wanted to know what was in those omitted pages ever since I read this book as a kid. And I kind of wonder why Maude didn't include those bits. It's so frustrating that they're not there. And I have to say, Reagan, I th- think that we, the readers, deserve that much anyway. For a book that's so much Anne fan service, we deserve romance. We didn't want more Anne matchmaking. We wanted more Anne romance, Ma. honestly.
0: And even just a letter or two from Gilbert's perspective, where we get to see him being romantic to her. Yes. Well, here's one tiny little romance piece that is in the book. And in a letter in Anne's second year to Gilbert, she starts her letter to him with, my esteemed friend, although she owns that Aunt Chatty's grandmother hadn't written that exactly, but she would have if she thought of it. But the best part is this fun little flirtation at the end of the letter where Anne writes, There's a crimson star hanging low over the White Storm King. I wish you were here to watch it with me. If you were, I really think it would be more than a moment of esteem and friendship. Ah! That's literally the closest we get to anything romantic
1: or salacious, but it is very sweet, nonetheless. It is very sweet. Aww. Our next segment is our Inspired by Anne recommendations, and I am going to recommend two of my favorite epistolary books. One is a delight for all ages, and the other is an absolutely immaculately crafted sci-fi romance. So the first one is called The Jolly Postman by Alan and Janet Allberg, and this is a picture book with enchanting illustrations about a bicycling letter carrier who delivers mail to different characters from fairy tales. Now what makes this book extra fun is the letters between the fairy tale characters are all included in the book. There are actual letters that the reader gets to pull out of actual envelopes. And then the mail also includes like little cards and games and even like tiny books. I really adored this book as a child and I often give it as a gift to kids now.
0: And you know what, Kelly? The grown-up version of that book is the Griffin and Sabine trilogy. Do
1: you remember? Do I remember. Reagan? if you were a cool teen or a cool 20-something in the 90s, you had these books on your shelves. They were like the ultimate
0: yeah, and they had that same idea where with every page you turned it was an envelope and you pulled out the letter itself that looked like it was handwritten that looked like it included things like coffee stains on it yep. or ripped corners of the pages and it just really did make you feel like you were truly reading uh love letters between two people and beautifully illustrated.
1: Beautifully illustrated like all this like pretty like ephemera like just really made it feel tactile and like you were part of the story. Yeah, the- Griffin and Sabine trilogy was so enchanting. But my other recommendation, a more contemporary book, also a romance, is called This Is How You Lose the Time War. And this is by two authors, Amal El-Motar and Max Gladstone. And this is simply one of the most remarkable books I've ever read. It's quite short, almost novella length but it packs a powerful punch. It's about two time-traveling soldiers in a far future war who leave each other notes at different points in space and time. What begins as taunts turns into curiosity, which becomes a tenuous friendship and ultimately blooms into love. I never thought I'd cry over a time-traveling space war and the cat and mouse game between characters known only as Red and Blue, but I did. Well, I am inspired
0: by all of Anne's meddling
1: and <laughs> helping. And as I've mentioned before, both Kelly and
0: I really love advice columns. And anyone who meddles as much as Anne is actually a budding advice columnist herself. So I'm going to recommend my absolute favorite advice column ever, which is CaptainAwkward.com. Not only is the captain's advice extremely well-written and thoughtfully considered, but she really tries to get under the specifics of a question to the larger societal issues at play. And she has a real knack of using metaphor and humor. If you are of the slightly nerdy bent, a lot of her advice will hit you right where you live. Honestly, I've learned a ton from her. I think her advice around boundaries in general is just some of the best I've ever read. And her advice around romantic relationships and friendships is also really awesome and very fun to read. So if you go on CaptainAwkward.com, I mean, she's, it can feel a little overwhelming. There's so many things to read, but start with the new here page because that's some of her most classic columns. Definitely read the one about the Darth Vader boyfriend. It's honestly so excellent. Captain Awkward is also writing a book and I, for one, will be the first in line to pre-order it when it comes out.
1: I think this is a great time of year to read Captain Awkward, too, with, like, the holidays upcoming. Cause yeah. Because this kind of brings up all that, like, family stuff, all that social stuff. You know, how do I set boundaries with families? How do I tell them certain conversations are off limits? How do I figure out who's invited to what? There's so many of these, like, kind of social conundrums that always come up at this time of year. And I know that she has a bunch of columns that specifically talk about some of that holiday stuff. A hundred percent. I
0: wish Nora Nelson could have written into Captain Awkward to say all of my relatives and friends keep on reminding me that I am not married at big family events and I really
1: just want to punch them. What do I do? Oh, and the captain would have such great advice for her, right? Like totally validating her frustration, totally explaining, hey, it's messed up that we live in a culture that makes women feel this way. She's a treasure. Co-sign Captain Awkward all the way. Thank you so much for listening Kindred Spirits. On our next episode, we are going to be talking about the sequel to our favorite Anne of Green Gables miniseries. And we have a lot to say about this adaptation that manages to squish Anne of Avonlea, Anne of the Island, and Anne of Windy Poplars and create something entirely new. So please come listen. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Club or email us at Club at gmail to tell us how you've shared the pod with others via social media or left us a review on apple podcasts and if you do we will send you one of our beautiful stickers of our logo for free thanks for listening kindred spirits